the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Hey, good afternoon and welcome to the, let's see, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Got a lot going on today. We're going to share a conversation I had with Mark Paoletta. He's the co-author of Created Equal, Clarence Thomas in his own words. We'll explain a bit later why that's the case. Uh, Clarence Thomas is being pressured to either step down or to recuse himself from the decision the Supreme Court is going to have to make regarding the future of former President Donald Trump. Some are suggesting he needs to uh, step aside from that um, decision-making process, and we'll explain why. We'll also talk with Ariella Turco. She's the director of the Family Research Council's Center for Religious Liberty and author of The Free to Believe, The Intensifying Intolerance Toward Christians in the West. It's a report released by them uh, just uh, the last few days. It's the first uh, this year, but it's been a, a report that's been released over several seasons. And finally, we'll talk with Lois Anderson, Executive Director of Oregon Right to Life, on a number of things, the shortened legislative uh, session, if there's anything pro-life to uh, look forward to, this month's Supreme Court ruling that rendered 10 pro-life senators ineligible for re-election. Uh, we'll talk about their conference coming up, the largest pro-life conference in the Pacific Northwest. Together we advocate and much more. That's coming up uh, also in the second hour of today's program. Taking a look at some of the day's headlines, the Senate on Wednesday failed to pass a supplemental spending agreement that included aid for Ukraine, Israel and Taiwan, as well as an ambitious border security and immigration package that drew widespread opposition from conservative Republicans in both chambers since it was released on Sunday. Sunday, today's what, Wednesday. So not a lot of time to read this very lengthy document and to comprehend it. The vote was 49 to 50. It needed 60 votes to pass. The uh, vote went mostly along party lines, except five Democrats voted no and four Republicans voted yes. Uh, won't even bother to go through who they were. Republicans uh, voting yes. Well, again, I'm not going to mention their names. A Hawaii bill that could boot pre former President Trump from the ballot narrowly advanced the bill in Hawaii's state legislature that could potentially keep the former president off the 2024 presidential ballot narrowly survived a procedural vote Yesterday, the Hawaii State Senate Judiciary Committee approved Senate Bill 2392 by a single vote, moving the bill to the full floor, according to uh, local news. The proposal would place the decision to potentially disqualify the former president under the chief election officer. Advocates for the bill claimed Trump's involvement in the riot at the Capitol on the 6th of January 21 amounted to an insurrection that should bar him from running for or winning the presidency. The bill comes as several other states have initiated efforts to prevent Trump, the current Republican frontrunner, from appearing on the ballot in November. And the Supreme Court will hear oral arguments tomorrow on that very case. Well, former President Trump wasn't on the ballot in Tuesday's Republican presidential primary in the early voting state of Nevada, but his absence wasn't enough to help secure a victory for the 
his um, last remaining major rival for the 24 GOP nomination, Nikki Haley. Voters casting ballots in the state-run Republican nominating contest couldn't write in Trump's name, but they could vote for none of these candidates' options. And the Associated Press projected that none of these candidates' options would defeat Haley in the primary, where no delegates to this summer's Republican convention were at stake. Trump supporters... um, Spoke with it, uh, who were spoken to at the polling station, said they were casting a ballot for none of these candidates. And while her name was on the ballot, the former two term South Carolina governor, who later served as U.N. ambassador in the Trump administration, ignored the Nevada primary. Haley didn't campaign in Nevada ahead of the uh, primary and hasn't been in the state since speaking in late October at the Republican Jewish Coalition's annual leadership conference. Trump's campaign senior advisor pointed towards Haley's home state, which holds the next major contest in the GOP nominating calendar on the 24th of February, saying more embarrassment coming in South Carolina. This week's contests are just an appetizer for Nevada, which uh, as a key general election battleground state will see plenty of campaign traffic this summer and autumn. Well, the man who correctly predicted nearly every election winner since 1984 is weighing in on the 2024 election and notes leaders. Well, Alan Lichten, he is um, an election prognosticator who has correctly predicted nearly every presidential race since 1984. He's developed a formula that's used to make predictions about an upcoming presidential election. And in many cases, it's proved to be accurate. I suppose it would have to be accurate all the time for him to be entirely reliable. But his keys to the White House consists of 13 true and false questions that he believes establish a strong indication of who will be named the victor in the uh, fall ballot. Each question is asked about the two dueling nominees. If true, they are given a key. And if false, their competitor receives a point. Thus far, Biden holds five of the keys, while Trump was able to capture just three. Lichtman revealed at Market Watch earlier this week. Well, that leaves five keys still up for grabs and enough room for the former president to secure a lead before the no, according to um, American University, where Lichten teaches. Uh, the keys are pretty man- uh, mandate party mandate contest, incumbency, third party short term economy, long term economy, policy change, social unrest, scandal, foreign military failure, foreign military success, incumbent charisma and challenger charisma. Biden's incumbency grants him one automatic point that uh, uh, is a key number to the three. While Robert F. Kennedy Jr. met the requirements to appear on the Utah presidential election ballot, Biden was granted another key for not appearing to have any significant third party or independent primary challenge. The Democrat was also given keys for having real per capita economic growth during the term equals uh, or exceeds means gro- uh, mean growth during the previous two terms, as well as uh, implementing policy changes during his presidency. Trump, however, secured key number one, which was granted to whoever uh, the policy, the political party holds the majority in the House of Representatives, uh, which goes to the GOP. Painting Biden as having a lack of charisma, he gave Trump the 12th key and possibly another point if Biden fails to have a major success in foreign or military affairs. He correctly predicts Trump would win the 2016 election and thereafter that Biden would win the 2020 presidential election against Trump. So we'll see what actually happens when actual Americans cast actual ballots.
A package aimed at giving $17.6 billion to Israel has failed to pass the House of Representatives on Tuesday. It had been facing a veto threat from the White House, so it was really no surprise. And House Republicans who support sending aid to Ukraine are scrambling to find a way to move it through Congress as a compromise on funding Kiev while overhauling U.S. border policy appears increasingly likely to fail and now has. There's a bunch of us advocating for military aid because that's what they really need. Representative Don Bacon, the Republican out of Nebraska, said on Tuesday, all the rebuilding stuff, let's talk about that later. They need weapons. Well, several GOP lawmakers have suggested that a standalone Ukraine bill that's solely focused on weapons and defensive funding less uh, then the roughly $60 billion that the president has requested could get enough bipartisan support to pass the House and the Senate. And we'll see what they actually come up with. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. I'm Georgine Rice. Coming up later in the program, a conversation with Mark Paoletta, co-author of Created Equal, Clarence Thomas in his own words. We'll also hear from uh, Ariella uh, Turco, Director of Family Research Council and author of Free to Believe, the intensifying intolerance toward Christians in the West. And Lois Anderson will join us in our second hour as well from Oregon Right to Life to catch up on the uh, short legislative session and much more. Well, House Republicans unveiled legislation that would prohibit Chinese, Russian, North Korea and uh, Iranian nationals from purchasing public or private real estate in the U.S. The American Land and Property Protection Act introduced by Representative Mark Alford and co-sponsored by seven fellow House Republicans ordered the president to take action prohibiting non-residents, businesses, agents, trustees and fiduciaries associated with the governments of China, Russia, North Korea and Iran from purchasing U.S. land. The prohibition would extend to any entity designated as a foreign terrorist organization by the State Department. Foreign adversaries have no business owning American real estate, Alfred said in an interview. Right now, if Americans wanted to travel to Moscow, Beijing or Havana, we would not be allowed to buy property. The effort comes as Republicans continue to raise the alarm about the growing share of American real estate purchased and owned by foreign entities. Lawmakers have argued such purchases could threaten U.S. national security agriculture production, and sometimes military interests if the land is located near a military base. In January, the U.S. Government Accountability Office, they issued a report showing the Department of Agriculture has failed to consistently share timely data on foreign investments in U.S. agricultural land as required under the 1978 Agricultural Foreign Investment Disclosure Act. Further, Pentagon officials told investigators the USDA needs to regularly provide more up-to-date and specific data. This report confirms one of our worst fears, that not only is the USDA unable to answer the questions of who owns what land and where, but that there is no plan by the department to internally reverse this dangerous flaw that affects our supply chain and economy. Congressional Western Caucus Chairman Dan Newhouse from Washington said after the report was published, food security is national security and we cannot allow foreign adversaries to influence our food supply while we stick our heads in the sand. Newhouse went on to add USDA's most recent data suggests that as of 2021, foreign investment in U.S. agricultural land grew to approximately 40 million acres. Additionally, Chinese agricultural investment in the U.S. increased tenfold between 2009 and 2016 alone. 
The San Francisco Bay Area Elementary School was trained by an organization called Woke Kindergarten, whose leaders want to see America and Israel destroyed as countries, according to posts on social media. According to the website, the head of the organization, um, also known as They Them, who is an abolitionist, early educator, cultural organizer and creator, currently innovating ways to resist, heal, liberate and create with their pedagogy, Woke Kindergarten. I believe the United States has no right to exist, she writes. I believe every settler colony who has committed genocide against native peoples, against indigenous people, has no right to exist. But she apparently believes she has a right to teach your kids. Heads up, America. A close friend of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas believes it's absurd the Democrats and media members are trying to pressure him to recuse himself from deciding whether former President Trump should be removed from Colorado's primary ballot. The Democrats are inventing recusal standards in an effort to shrink the court to have their preferred justices decide the cases. So says Mark Paoletta. On Thursday, the U.S. Supreme Court is scheduled to hear arguments about whether the Colorado Supreme Court erred in ordering Trump to be excluded from the 2024 presidential primary ballot when it cited the 14th Amendment in the U.S. Constitution for his actions surrounding the January 6th riot at the U.S. Capitol. Paoletta, who co-authored the book Created Equal, Clarence Thomas in his own words, is a longtime friend of Thomas and worked on his 1991 confirmation. He also served as his wife, Virginia Jenny Thomas, lawyer during the January 6th investigation, and now the attorney is peeved the Democrats want Justice Thomas to recuse himself because of his wife. The Washington Post published a story on Tuesday headlined, Some Want Justice Thomas to Skip Trump's Ballot Case. He Doesn't Plan to, which examined why the justices recused themselves and the arguments for and against Thomas doing so. However, the decision to recuse is up to the individual justice, the Post noted, before diving into Jenny Thomas' January 6th involvement which was fairly minimal. The Post detailed the seven Democratic lawmakers sent a letter to Thomas last month urging him to recuse himself from the case, citing dwindling public confidence in the Supreme Court. ABC News published a similar story on Tuesday headlined, Should Justice Thomas Recuse in 14th Amendment Case Because of Wife's January 6th Role? Paoletta said spouses are entitled to express an opinion on matters that may come before the court, but those opinions do not constitute an interest that requires recusal. Jenny Thomas's activities were so minimal that the January 6th committee did not even mention her once in any hearings or in the 845 pages a page final report, Paoletta pointed out. The Democrats made up double standards for recusal or are outrageous and hypocritical, he continued. Their leading judicial ethics experts filed a brief supporting liberal federal appellate judge Stephen Reinhardt's decision to not recuse from an appeal that came before him on a, a challenge to California's same-sex marriage ban, even though his wife's ACLU chapter joined two amicus briefs in the district court's proceedings. And she publicly opposed the ban she wa- he was considering. Indeed, Judge Reinhardt refused to recuse himself from the 2010 case despite his wife's involvement. In contrast to Judge Reinhardt's wife's organization filing a brief on the constitutionality of the issue before the court, Jenny Thomas has no connection whatsoever to the issue in this case. There is no basis for Justice Thomas to recuse because of his wife's views or activities. This is not even a close call, Paoletta pointed out. He also said Ginsburg failed to recuse herself when the law firm where her husband practiced appeared before the Supreme Court 
but nobody seemed to mind. Well, people mind a lot of things these days that they didn't before. By the way, we'll be hearing from Mark Paoletta, the co-author of Created Equal, Clarence Thomas in his own words, uh, coming up in the next uh, couple of segments and part two of that conversation tomorrow. Well, critics across the political landscape are taking aim at President Biden for avoiding the traditional pre-Super Bowl interview for two years in a row. Last year, Biden did not sit down with an affiliate of Fox when the network aired the Super Bowl. This year, CBS is broadcasting the game and the White House revealed eight days in advance that Mr. Biden would again not make himself available. We hope viewers enjoy watching what they tune in for the game, a White House spokesperson told Variety. White House Press Secretary Corrine Jean-Pierre, she defended the president on Tuesday when asked about the Super Bowl dodge, citing his routine exchanges with reporters and adding, I wouldn't say that he is not engaging with the press. I would not say that because he does. Media Buzz host uh, Howard Kurtz called the decision incomprehensible that Biden doesn't get in front of a camera more often, particularly in the wake of positive economic news in recent weeks. Cornell Law School professor and media critic William Jacobson said this was the return of Biden's basement strategy from 2020 that's starting much earlier in the 2024 election cycle. There is no upside to Biden sitting down with media in an unscripted setting, Jacobson said, and there is large potential downside if he stumbles either mentally or verbally. A White House reporter who covers Biden took a swipe at the president for constantly keeping the press at arm's length. Bloomberg correspondent Selena Motion suggested the move by the White House to snub CBS is telling. Former CNN White House correspondent Frank Sesno warned that avoiding the interview reinforces the narrative that he's running from a fight. Fox News senior political analyst Britt Hume, a former White House reporter himself, said it made sense from the Biden administration's perspective not to take the chance on the interview, saying it would obviously not be to his advantage to risk it. He's depended upon the press corps sympathies, which he has generously received, in my view, to advance his political cause, Hume said, adding he doubted a Republican president would get as much of a pass about avoiding the media so studiously. Hume expects the Biden campaign to use the same playbook in 2020 by limiting his public appearances where it's possible. It could be criticized, but it's better to be criticized. Or is it better to be criticized or to have a public embarrassment? Hume asked clearly favoring the latter. Well, the same people who talk about the importance of choice when it serves their purposes don't seem to care about choice when it comes to your work. You have value to offer in the form of your labor and all that comes with it, whether that's uh, a skills, experience, insights or otherwise. If a business wants to a contract with you for your labor and you agree to the terms, everyone is better off. Certainly the government wouldn't want to interfere with that, Right. Providing your labor to a willing buyer of of that labor produces more economic output, which generates more revenue and wages that can be taxed. However, there is an effort to do just the opposite, and it's being attention is being called to it. We'll talk more about that in the days ahead. Well, coming up, a classic conversation with Mark Paoletto, followed by in the second hour, Ariella Turco from Family Research uh, Council on the intensifying intolerance toward Christians in the West and uh, Lois Anderson from Oregon Right to Life, bringing us up to date on the legislative session and what's next. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast.
is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the life of Justice Clarence Thomas is as inspiring as any in American history. An intensely private man, he shared his story in a celebrated memoir, My Grandfather's Son. Fascinating to learn about that relationship. But he resumed his characteristic reticence until the filmmaker, Michael Peck, persuaded him to sit for a series of in-depth interviews. The result was the gripping documentary created equal, Clarence Thomas, in his own words. Well, the book that followed now makes a fuller version of that extraordinary portrait available for the first time. After President George Herbert Walker Bush nominated Clarence Thomas to the Supreme Court, my guest, Mark Paoletta, worked closely with the judge through his excruciating confirmation ordeal, the infamous high-tech lynching presided over by Senator Joe Biden. The interviews presented in the book reveal the powerful character forged in poverty and injustice and the unshakable devotion to the Constitution that have made Justice Thomas one of the country's greatest jurists. Well, again, joining us to talk about this new book, which uh, adds a great deal more than the the documentary, both of which are essential. Mark Paoletta has served as general counsel of the Office of Management and Budget, counsel to Vice President Mike Pence and assistant counsel to President George Herbert Walker Bush. He was instrumental in the confirmation of Clarence Thomas to the Supreme Court and joins us now to talk about the book Created Equal, Clarence Thomas in His Own Words. Thank you so much for joining us. Georgine, thanks for having me on. That was a great introduction of the, of the, the movie and the book. Yeah. Thank you. Well, let me ask you about the book. Uh, for those who saw the documentary, uh, it was extraordinary. Why the book to follow? Sure. So uh, Michael Pack, as you said, made this fantastic documentary, and I was very involved with it from the very, very beginning. It was sort of my idea to make a, a film on Justice Thomas. Michael Pack was interested. He's one of our greatest film uh, documentary filmmakers. And when he did film in 2017 and 2018, that's when he made it. He interviewed Justice Thomas for 25 hours, one-on-one. And as you remember from the film, it's just this like looking straight at you. And then he interviewed Jimmy Thomas for six hours. And once you got done with all the interviews and you were viewing it, and I was you know, looking at Michael's kind of cuts and versions, you know, there were so many things because I was in those interviews that I, that I thought would definitely make it into the film because they were just great observations or great exchanges that Justice Thomas was commenting on. And, you know, a two-hour film, and you have more than 30 hours of interviews, a lot, most, is going to be, end up on the cutting room floor. And so it was killing me uh, as, as the film was getting finalized, and there were things that I thought was going to get, get in uh, that they weren't. And I thought it would be a crime, right? This is unprecedented access to any Supreme Court justice, let alone Justice Clarence Thomas, who is, you know, a, a, a private man and, um, and, and, and and a good friend and I think our greatest person, and have all that stuff just kind of sitting in some whatever box uh, or, you know, hard drive just seemed, uh, like I said, a crime. So the idea was, let's pull this all together and make a book on it. Uh, so it, where, so Justice Thomas can talk more on, or, or the reader uh, can hear Justice Thomas talking more on his life, you know, his challenges, his journey. Uh, and so it's just this beautiful, intimate kind of discussion with Justice Thomas on all sorts of things. And it takes you up through, you mentioned his, uh, his memoirs, and I, I worked on, with, uh, with Justice Thomas on those memoirs, and they're phenomenal. Those only go up to you know, when he goes on the Supreme Court, right, that's the last page is, is he's taking his seat on the Supreme Court. And this takes you to 2018. So he's talking about his colleagues. He's talking about being a Supreme Court justice. He's talking about how he approaches um, his, his, his job his, and, and the role of a judge and a justice. Um, and then some of the cases, some of the big cases he's handled um, and decided. So it's a, 
it's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful book if you want to get to know Justice Thomas. Those who know him already and have seen the film, there's a lot more there. And those who don't know him, um, you know, I highly recommend the book and the movie. The movie is just so visceral because uh, mm-hmm. you see him talking and, um, uh, and, you know, and, and some of the images, including the confirmation hearing. Most of what we think we know about Justice Clarence Thomas is filtered through uh, the media. And one of the things that I understand that motivated him to undertake these two projects, which really was one sitting, but two projects, was to speak for himself, his own words, because it was rather interesting to me to read about the, the minute his name was mentioned as a Supreme Court nominee, uh, the misinformation and the, the campaign to mischaracterize who he was, where he's from, how many children his mother had, uh, I think really is very telling about the approach uh, to his nomination. Wow, you know this well. You, you know the story of the, the, somebody challenging his mom of how many children she had. Uh, it's crazy. Yeah, you know, that's, I worked on that confirmation, and literally from the day he was announced, uh, that was my job. It was, I was a young lawyer in the White House, but was to fight back and get information, you know, to, to combat the misinformation on him. And, um, and so at the very beginning of those confirmation hearings, and I had gotten to know Justice Thomas before, uh, on his D.C. circuit uh, um, selection. Um, I was the first person in the White House to reach out to him in 1989 when President Bush was thinking about uh, appointing him to the D.C. circuit. So I got to know him. But literally the, within the first couple of days after he was nominated by Justice, uh, by, by President Bush, he sat me down, and I had known him already, but we went through his entire Rolodex of, of people you know, from his life so that as and, and told me who they were. I mean, I knew some of them, but he went through it so that I could be armed to go and call friend X or Y and, and, and you know, and sort of as they attacked him, as you said, um, that he had a Confederate flag, uh, that there was, you know, domestic violence allegations, absolutely false, that he had a tax lien on his house, all these things that the left just kept making up. And the crazy thing right, is despite all those attacks, which were just nonstop, you know, Justice Thomas, you know, by the, by the end of his first set of hearings in September, he was going to get more 60 votes. Uh, you know, because, he, you know, the American people connected with him and, and, the, and the polling was great in terms of, uh, you know, uh, his confirmation. And then, of course, they uncorked this, you know, last minute allegation uh, and all, as he says in the movie, all heck broke loose. Uh, but uh, they've been after him since he came to town, as you and you know, his story is working very well, you know. And he was a, became a public figure basically in December of 1980 when uh, Juan Williams wrote an article on him. And since then, he's just been attacked, attacked, attacked. And I think he triggers the left. Uh, he exposes their racism because they think the left that somebody has to have certain mm-hmm. thoughts based on the color of their skin. And that's what Justice Thomas has been fighting against his entire life. And you can see it so much in this book and in the conversations uh, about his experiences and the fierceness of his, you know, think independent thinking and how he really bristles everything, you know, across the, you know, across the, 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 the spectrum. Um, and one of those instances, kind of tying it back to his, his role as a justice, is he talks about star decisis, obviously with kind of Roe v. Wade and, and the recent Dobbs opinion, where he talks about what, right when he's in Holy Cross and he says that all black students were supposed to like and listen to Hugh Masekela. And Clarence Thomas says, you know, I have nothing against Hugh Masekela. I just didn't want to listen to him. And to be told that I had to listen to Hugh mm-hmm. Masekela was kind of offensive. And, um, and just like he, then he ties it to 
you know, stare decisive, these notions of stare decisive, that somehow I'm supposed to accept Roe v. Wade, that I'm supposed to stop thinking about Roe v. Wade, you know? You know, good, good luck with that, I think he says, you know? Um, so it's a, it's, a, it's a great insight into a great man. Well, it, it really is. And I think one way to understand Clarence Thomas, and you mentioned the, the book that he had authored um, before this uh, documentary and book about his uh, relationship with his grandfather, really tells us a lot about his approach to not just jurisprudence, but to life in general and uh, the challenge he faced to be put into a box where African-Americans are supposed to reside without question. As an African-American, I appreciate that independence that he uh, he demonstrated, but he had a had a beginning that uh, reflected the time that he was uh, he was growing up. We're going to take a break here in just a moment, but when we come back, I'd like to talk about his grandfather uh, growing up in Savannah under his grandfather, who was very determined that he was going to raise young men who would be uh, men of consequence and would be able to. Uh, to support themselves. So we'll get into that in just a moment. Again, we're talking about the book Created Equal, Clarence Thomas in His Own Words. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with my guest, uh, Mark Paoletta, who is the co-author of Created Equal, Clarence Thomas in His Own Words. Provides significantly more information than did the documentary. I would recommend both. Um, in Created Equal, as as was the case in his first book about his relationship with his grandfather, you really get a sense of of um, uh, Justice Thomas's background and the role that his grandfather played in his upbringing. It was not an easy life, uh, nor was it one that conformed to the norms of the time. Can you talk a little bit about his grandfather that shaped his character, his thinking, his future, and uh, really where he is today? His grandfather is the most important person in his in the form of life. Um, his life utterly changed when he was, um, you know, he, he was born in a shanty uh, in Pinpoint and in a little, little, little house without, uh, but for one, you know, light bulb with electricity um, and, um, you know, just real, real, as he calls it, rural poverty. And he was kind of wandering the streets when he was going to school as in, in, in second grade. And he goes to live with his grandfather. His mom uh, was trying to raise three kids. The father had left um, and, you know, utter poverty in, you know, it's just the segregated South. And when he's seven years old, he, his grandma, his mother asks uh, his, uh, her father and stepmother uh, to, to help raise him and his brother Myers. And when he, he goes over there, and if you recall from the movie, his mom says, pack up all your stuff. And it literally fits into um, uh, like half of a, 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 a grocery bag. And his brother is the same thing. And they walk two blocks down. He says, it's the longest journey I've ever made because uh, it changed my life. And when he shows up, his grandfather says, boys, the damn vacation is over. And he, they both look at him like, what vacation? We've been living in this terrible you know, poverty. And he says, it's going to be rules and regulations from now on. And so from that point on, Clarence Thomas's life is like hard work after hard work, discipline, you know, getting up at 430 in the morning, uh, working for his grandfather on his oil truck. His grandfather had a oil, a small oil delivery business. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those things that, that you know, um, it shapes Clarence Thomas through his life. And his grandfather really believed education was the key and he enrolls him in these uh this this uh, catholic school parochial school called saint benedict's uh which is again in the segregated south and he tells his, his two two grandsons uh, 
uh, you're never going to miss a day of school. And if you are uh, sick, I'm going to drag you to school. And if you're dead, I'm going to bring your body to, to, to school for three days to make sure that you're really dead. And, uh, and they never miss a day of school uh, and at, at that school. And um, so his grandfather was just this incredible self-made man um, who, you know, um, uh, you know, taught Clarence Thomas and his, and his brother Myers you know, the, 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 the life lessons, life lessons by example. And he, in the summertime, he, he took him out to this piece of property. He had this farm, uh, which had been in the family for some time. And they and he literally built a, a house out there because he didn't want his two grandsons to be in the city and sort of, uh, you know, getting into trouble. So every summer they went out to the farm and they built a house. They, they, they farmed out there. And um, it was just so impactful on him. And, um, and as you may know, right, at the, in the Supreme Court, there's, uh, Justice Thomas has a bust of his grandfather mm-hmm. that is on a kind of shelf that over, over, kind of overlooks him. And it has this saying, uh, uh, old man can't is dead. I helped bury him. And that is, you know, there are all these great, one of the things that was really fun in the book was, you know, Justice Thomas had talked about all these sayings that um, his grandfather used to say to him, some of them, you know, uh, pretty funny. Uh, but he goes through all of these sayings uh, in, in the book, and we only had a couple, you know, that we could put into the movie. So, um, grandfather was an extraordinary man, um, and as I said, enrolled him in this um, Catholic school. And, and the nuns, I think, are the second most impactful, you know, uh, people on him in his in his life. As, as you know, that that still kind of. So when when Clarence Thomas talks about his past, it's his grandfather. Uh, and, and grandmother and, and, the, and the nuns. You grew up in the Jim Crow South. Uh, he made the decision um, to attend seminary and then decided, no, that wasn't the direction he was going to take. His grandfather had a very strong reaction to his decision to step away from, from seminary. Can you talk a bit about that and uh, the, the radical years that followed? Yeah, so when he... So Justice Thomas uh, graduates, does very well at St. Benedict's, and then is going to go to goes to one year at St. Pius, which was still segregated, a Catholic school in, in Savannah. Uh, and then he ends up wanting to go to the seminary. Uh, it's called a minor seminary, which is like a high school, minor seminary. It's a high school. They don't exist anymore. But um, for, for men who thought they had a vocation to become a priest. And again, it's 1964. Uh, it's just been desegregated. So Clarence Thomas and, a, and another student are the first two black students to enter uh, St. John Vianney Minor Seminary. And his grandfather says, okay, because it, it was going to cost some money uh, to go, and it was a boarding school. And, and uh, Myers Anderson, his grandfather, said, okay, if you go, you can't quit. And so uh, Clarence Thomas goes to uh, go, does very well at St. John Vianney um, Seminary. Uh, and then goes off to college, basically to the to a seminary, uh, and it's it's at that point where he has these kind of racist kind of issues, you know, where people are, are, are do some racist things to him at St. John Vianney, um, and then at um, at his um, Immaculate Conception in Missouri, and the the sort of the, the the he was kind of losing his vocation by this point, and not sure he wanted to go, and there was this you know terrible scene where um, or episode where. Um, Martin Luther King, uh, when he's assassinated, Justice Thomas hears one of the seminarians say, um, good, I hope that SOB dies. And as Justice Thomas, it's one of the most 
impactful moments in the film Mm -hmm. and in the book, but he talks about how like at that moment he wanted to leave. It it was over any doubts. It was over at that point. And he leaves the, 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 the seminary and he basically leaves the church. And, you know, and as just as Thomas says, you know, if, you know, he was never really about his faith. I think he never lost his faith. It was the church that he had a problem with. And he thought that the church should have been doing more on racial injustice issues. And, and then he said something like, if the, the, the church had worked as hard as they did on, on sort of pro-life issues, if they, you know, worked that hard on racial justice issues, you know, we would have, you know, would have been a lot better. And so he leaves the church um, and, um, but, but goes to Holy Cross, which is, of course, a Catholic school, but he um, ends up at Holy Cross, and he, again, is it's kind of um, rejects what I'll call the values of the, the, his grandfather and the nuns, and he, um, as he says, race and racism explained everything to me by this point, and I was angry about everything, and, you know, he um, um, sort, of, um, sort of joined the kind of black nationalist movement, and um, and the Black Panthers kind of uh, came to, to hosted a meeting uh, with the Black Panthers. So it was a, a turbulent time for him, uh, and as you say, radical. And um, and he ends up uh, during I think his his, uh, his second year there because he went there as a sophomore um, at a protest that was up in Boston, like an anti-war pro- protest. Mm-hmm. But it moves over to Cambridge, and it becomes a riot. And it's, there's a lot of violence and a lot of, you know, a, a lot of craziness. And he realizes, uh, you know, at that right that, wow, I've really left my values. And this is, I've really become something I, I didn't want to become. And he walks back to, um, he comes back to uh, Holy Cross uh, early in the morning and he stops in front of the chapel um, on Holy Cross campus. And he, and he stands out front of it because he hasn't been inside the church for a couple of years now. And he says, you know, God, if you take anger out of my heart, I'll never hate again. And and he says that's the, the kind of the, the beginning of the slow return to returning to faith. And it takes some time. He still is a radical, um, and um, and he's not going to church, but he you know begins to kind of connect up back with the nuns and his faith. And ultimately, you know, he returns to the church, um, and, um, and 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 kind of during the Reagan administration sort of as that great scene in the movie and in the book where he talks about what are the values that he's willing to die for. And it's his grandfather's values um, and, and the principles on which our country were founded. So, um, you know, it's that you see the, you, you see this journey and this evolution of Clarence Thomas kind of coming full circle back to his upbringing and, and the values that his, his grandfather instilled in him. There's a chapter on lessons from Yale law school that again, helped to shape the course of his professional life. Um, he was a Yale law graduate who couldn't get a job. He um, went to work for Missouri Attorney General Jack Danforth, and that was a significant relationship, as was his uh, the impact of Thomas Sowell. Can you talk a bit about what he brought from his Yale law school uh, experience and beyond? Yeah, so what's really interesting in the book, keep, going back to sort of the book more, even more so than the movie, mm-hmm. you really get a sense, and this is a through line with Justice Thomas, which is he really doesn't like, right, and this, this kind of begins or at Yale, where he's in the, sort of on the ground working on real-world problems and goes to work for the New Haven uh, Legal Assistance Program. He works there the entire time uh, that he's at, at Yale Law School. Um, and 
you know, he talks about the stuff in the ivory tower who have these theories about how they're going to help, uh, you know, people and, and, and programs and all that, that, that are sort of virtue signaling or don't really work. But in, in his view, they don't care whether they work. They just want to come up with the theory. And Clarence Thomas is on the ground working in the New Haven Legal Assistance Office and working with people who actually have these day-to-day problems. And that's what he loved. And you see that through his life, like, you know, um, the, the idea that the, the, the folks, in, in, in particular, the people on the left who have these theories he always goes back to and don't really care how they're implemented and the harm they cause. So his, I think he gets that part. He, he worked at, um, at Holy Cross in a, with, a, with a breakfast program and saw some of the problems there and how it was implemented um, and, and when he goes over to, to Yale, um, he has experience. Um, and, um, and then he, he talks about the fact that, you know, when he comes up to the north, uh, and particularly at Yale, it's a different world. In fact, it's, you know, it's more intolerant and in some ways more racist mm-hmm. than anything he's encountered. Uh, and, and, um, and, that, um, and that sort of followed him through, and of course, all the way to his confirmation of, uh, again, uh, kind of the, 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 the Northeast liberal that's going to have these expectations of what he's a combination of what he's supposed to think, and then also discounting, right? You don't really fit here. You're only here because of affirmative action. And it's this stigma that he talks about and, and, and the, kind of the, 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 um, you know, the, the, the policy problems with with some of these programs uh and the harm they cause and um and of course in there he also talks about um you know um um you know he's he, he has a son by this point right? he's married and he has a young son and how he's not going to let some of these social experiments be you know sort of be done on his son yeah absolutely uh, well, i'll tell you um, what we need a, to take a break yeah. the book created equal clarence thomas in his own words really a fascinating look from his vantage point of who he is and what he's done and what he thinks we'll be back you're listening to the georgine rice show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, the Family Research Council's Center for Religious Liberty published an updated edition of its report, Free to Believe, the Intensifying Intolerance Toward Christians in the West. To provide a better understanding of religious freedom violations perpetrated by Western governments against Christian individuals, organizations, and churches. Well, between January of 2020 and December of 23, the Family Research Center identified 168 such incidents across 16 countries. Well, here to talk with us about that is Ariel Turco. She's the director of the Family Research Council Center for Religious Liberty and author of the Free to Believe, the Intensifying Intolerance Toward Christians in the West report. Thank you so much for joining us. Good to be with you. Well, this isn't the first report, but it has given us a perspective over a period of time of the intensifying pressure, the intolerance toward uh, Christian uh, life and worldview uh, that we're seeing increase over time. Tell us a little bit about the study and how you uh, determine what makes the study and what you, uh, you have found as a result. Yeah, so we were particularly looking at specific incident, incidents of government violations against of religious freedom against Christians. Uh, so that meant not just a broad law that was bad for religious freedom, but where Christians were specifically paying a price uh, for their faith. Uh, and we noticed we started the research in 2020, and many of those cases had to do, obviously, with COVID-19, mm-hmm. where churches were being treated unfairly by the government, uh, especially in comparison with 
with other types of establishments. But more recently, we're seeing, as you suggested, that the issues now revolve more around a censorship of Christian expression, uh, of expression of our religious beliefs, uh, especially as it regards to these hot-button political issues. Now, this was uh, obtained through open-source documents. Tell us the process of of uh, discovering and then revealing these incidents that have um, increased over time. Absolutely. So we looked at 34 countries that we considered to be in the West. So that was mainly Europe, uh, United States, Canada, Australia, New Zealand. Uh, And within those countries, we found incidents in 16 of them. Um, And basically, we just looked at what was publicly available. These were people telling their stories. Their stories were featured in the news or in other public documents. Uh, So this information was not hard to find. uh, But really what's unique is that it is compiled in one place. uh, And when you see it all together, I think it paints a really concerning picture about religious freedom in the West. What kinds of offenses uh, were cited in the in the study, uh, offenses in that um, the governments uh, were not tolerant of Christians living out their faith. What kinds of things are we are we talking about? So one of the worst types of incidents uh, comes out of the United Kingdom, actually, where we've seen several of these. Uh, in one case, Isabel von Spruce, she's a Christian pro-lifer. Uh, she went to stand outside of an abortion facility, and she was on the public sidewalk. However, because she was in, I believe it was 150 yards of an abortion facility, uh police came and questioned her, and she wasn't holding a sign, she wasn't protesting, but they asked her what she was doing, and they specifically asked if she was praying. And she said, well, maybe silently in my head I'm praying. And that was enough for her to be arrested uh, because of these draconian laws that create buffer zones around abortion facilities. And what that tells me is that the United Kingdom, at least in certain areas, is far more interested in protecting uh, abortion and the feelings of people around abortion than they are about protecting the fundamental right to religious freedom for people like Isabel. What about here in the United States? What do these incidents tell us about um, the secularization of Western uh, countries and the United States in particular? Well, we see a lot of intolerance, especially around the issue of gender identity or transgenderism. Uh, We saw multiple instances where uh, people, especially Christians, were punished for their beliefs about this issue. One couple was denied the ability to have a foster care license for no other reason than the fact that they did not subscribe to gender ideology. They believed that every child was born in exactly the right body. And so they were prepared to love any child, love any child that that needed a home. Um, And they were very disappointed when the state said, no, you don't believe in uh, our idea of what gender is, of transgenderism. And so you can't Uh, you can't foster. And that's a serious um, punishment for a loving Christian couple who just wants to open up their home and serve a child, and yet their Christian convictions uh, are preventing them from doing that. 
Tony Perkins, who is the Family Research Council president and former chair of the U.S. Commission on the International Religious Freedom, he uh, said in a statement, it is shocking to see Western countries, the same ones we think of as free and open societies, taking authoritarian measures against Christians simply trying to live out their faith. Hostility toward um, Bible-believing believers Uh, Christians is clearly and steadily rising in the West. Now, this may be shocking to some of our listeners. We might assume that uh, surely these individuals were behaving or misbehaving in a way that merited that kind of a response. But that's not what your study indicates. Right. So religious freedom is simply it's the ability to hold uh, and choose and live out our faith. So the what we see in the West is that the issue is really over the living out your faith part. Are you able to express your beliefs without being punished? Are you able to uh, live according to your Christian convictions without being punished? Um, and when we're not, when we're not allowed to have those things, that seriously undermines and erodes religious freedom. Uh, Religious freedom is in our First Amendment. It's often called our first freedom. However, if we let these types of abuses against religious freedom continue, uh, we're going to be in bad shape as a country, and it's going to affect our ability to speak up for religious freedom around the world. We see many persecuted believers look to the United States government, just praying and hoping uh, that the U.S. president or U.S. members of Congress will speak out for religious freedom in their country, uh, will speak out against oppression for the persecuted. Uh, And we're not going to be well positioned to do that if religious freedom is eroding in our own home. We, of course, are in an election year. There are consequences that follow every election and how you cast your ballot. How do you hope that the details, the information that's made available in this latest version of the report will help inform us about how to protect our first freedom and whether or not uh, Western governments that we put in place through the election process uh, will protect that freedom? Well, we need to be thinking about this as we head into the ballot box, um, as we look at the candidates that are out there. We need to be asking, does this candidate respect religious freedom? Does this candidate want to defend the rights of people of every faith, not just Christians, to be able to live out their faith and articulate their beliefs in the public square? Or will they not care about that? Sadly, we've seen that the Biden administration has very little respect for religious freedom whether that's at home in the United States or abroad, uh, he's really pulled back some of the United States religious freedom advocacy abroad. This is deeply concerning. And so we need to be thinking about this as we head into the next election. And it can always be tempting to think, well, uh, this is a problem for other people. Mm -hmm. It's not going to affect me. But the reality is when religious freedom is eroding in our society, it will eventually impact you. Uh, So we really need to be uh, forward thinking on this. For listeners who would like to read the report in its entirety, what's the best way for them to uh, to connect? Yeah, you can always go to our website, frc.org, and it's on the home page. Or if you want to go directly to the report, you can go to frc.org slash free to believe. Free to believe. Well, I appreciate your putting this report together for us to give us the opportunity to gain perspective on what's happening in this country. We see isolated incidents. We may have a sense that things are declining in this area, but this report helps us to put it into perspective, not only for the United States, but the Western countries as well that have historically valued uh, the freedom of religion and the freedom to live out one's religion, your faith in the public square. Ariel Turkle, thank you so much for joining us.
Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Again, Ariel is the director of the Family Research Council's Center for Religious Liberty and author of Free to Believe, the Intensifying Intolerance Toward Christians in the West. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, Lois Anderson is the executive director of Oregon Right to Life, and she joins us today to talk about the shortened legislative session, this month's Supreme Court ruling on rendering 10 pro-life senators ineligible for re-election. And together we advocate. There's much, much more as well. And by the way, there's a pro-life lobby day coming up. Lois Anderson, thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, Georgine. It's great to be with you. Well, it's great to be with you as well, and particularly as we see Roe versus Wade in our rearview mirror and the challenges that have presented themselves since the overturn of that decision. How have things changed or how has that impacted Oregon Right to Life and the work that you all have done? Well, I think um, the most important way it just seems it, uh, so much more intense, if that's possible. You know, the the rearview mirror is a great way to describe how we're looking at Roe v. Wade, um, but the work here, our law, our legal structure didn't change mm-hmm. from that decision, but certainly our work now has really in, intensified as we have more ability to um, to pass laws in Oregon, but we have a culture to influence and fix first, and so we, we really have... Um, uh, even more, even more work to do. Yeah. 50 years after the Supreme Court said, hey, this is a constitutional right. Everything's fine. Uh, it takes some time to uh, reorient the thinking of uh, people and here in the state of Oregon um, to consider the value of and the sanctity of human life. So you certainly do have your work cut out for you. I'm so grateful for the work of Oregon Right to Life. In fact, my radio career began uh, when I was a spokesperson for Oregon Right to Life, and I was interviewed here a couple of times. So I have uh, been on the inside, and I have uh, looked uh, back on the work that you have and continue to do with great uh, fondness and respect. And so before we get started, I just want to thank you for your leadership and the ongoing work of Oregon Right to Life. You're really kind, Georgine. It's a it's a real honor and privilege for me to be sort of the face, but um, uh, we just you know that we have tens of thousands yes. of wonderful pro-life Oregonians across the state who uh, work every day to protect life in Oregon. And um, it's just wonderful to be able to see it from the bird's eye view on a daily basis. Yeah, yeah. You're the voice and the name that we can we can point at. But you're absolutely right. Oregon Right to Life represents a large contingent of people who are thoroughly pro-life and are willing to make the, uh, the sacrifice of time, treasure and talent uh, to communicate. The, the value of life and to encourage Oregonians, fellow Oregonians, to embrace that same worldview. Well, let's begin by talking about the shortened Oregon legislative session. Many are concerned about whether or not anything meaningful in the pro-life area will be taken up or accomplished during this shortened session. Sure. Well, um, it, there's there's been a lot of talk, as you know, Georgine, and as many of your listeners know, every session there seems to be this idea of, oh, we're just going to be non-controversial mm-hmm. this time, and we're just going to, you know, do things that we can and get out of the building. And that ha- there is some pressure on our pro-life legislators to, hey, we don't want to deal with controversial issues, but um, we do have a couple of, of bills that we've introduced 
These are pieces of legislation that we've been working on for quite a long time. Um, and one is the Born Alive Infant Protection Act, House Bill 4108. And the chief sponsor of that is Representative Bobby Levy from the eastern part of the state. And that legislation gives legal protection to babies that survive abortions, late-term abortion. Abortion for any reason at any time during pregnancy is legal in Oregon. And so it is possible that um, babies can survive an abortion procedure. And we're focusing on this bill tomorrow in our lobby day, which um, there's still space if people want to come at 9 a.m. at Salem Evangelical Church to kick it off. Um, uh, and she, we have a, an abortion survivor from Oregon. Um, her name is Amy, and she's going to be coming and sharing her story. And she'll also be heading to the Capitol along with the rest of us in the afternoon. Uh, so it's a, it's a real thing that happens. And right now in Oregon, um, that protection of whether or not that child lives or dies is up to the medical abortion provider or the parent, um, and, and we think they deserve to have the same legal protection as, as you and me do yeah. in that situation. Yeah. Um, and then the other piece of legislation is on the Senate side, uh, she's sponsored by Dennis Lithicum, um, and that's the Pain Capable Unborn Child Protection Act, which limits abortion um, at a 15-week gestation, which is um, the scientific consensus of when an unborn child can feel pain. Um, there's there's evidence that baby can feel pain earlier than that, but that's kind of the, the consensus. So these are really broadly supported legislation. As you can notice, the, the we're, de- we're really dealing with late-term abortions. We're, we're not in a situation yet in Oregon where we can be talking about heartbeat bills or, or other kinds of, of limits um, that they are able to pass in other states. But we're very, um, we're determined to look at uh, legislation that is um, widely supported by Oregonians and, and work on that together with our pro-life legislators. Well, again, I uh, appreciate those efforts. Now, I, I do want to take a moment to talk about the Pro-Life Lobby Day. This is an opportunity for uh, our listeners to go to Salem and to actually speak with lawmakers. Tell us a little bit about the day. I know you mentioned arriving at 9 a.m. You'll begin at the Salem Evangelical Church. What is the day like and who will they have an opportunity to speak with? Yeah, so we'll have a couple of hours in the morning where we'll we'll go over um, some do's and don'ts uh, of of what to do at the Capitol. Things are a little strange right now because they have a big part of the building is under construction. And so we just want to make sure everybody is well prepared to what to expect. And then um, we have... uh, um, also information about our, our bills. Now, for people, um, you've talked about short sessions, shortened session. This is a really tight timeline. So bills actually have to be not have had a hearing, but have a hearing scheduled by Monday. Mm. So it's really important for us over the next few days, whether you can come in person or email your legislator to request that these bills at least receive a hearing. Of course, we'd love for them to have a a work session. Um, You know, all we can do is ask. (laughs) We can ask emphatically. That's what we can do, and that's what we're encouraging people to do. So um, in the back to the lobby day, a couple of hours in the morning, uh, 
of training. We'll have um, a light lunch available, and then um, people will head to the Capitol. And we have a couple of group meetups with um, Senator Knope, who's the Republican leader of the Senate, with um, Representative Levy, who's one of the chief sponsors of the bills, and with Senator Lithicum also. And all that information will be given at the at the day. You don't need to register, but if you can, um, it will help us know um, to expect you in the, in the morning. Um, and then um, we do have some meetings already scheduled with legislators. Um, and then also you can, if you come and your legislator isn't on the schedule, we can show you where to go and, and you can try to to speak with them or speak with their staff. So all of this thing is being physically in the building is is really important for them to, to see you and we'll give you the tools you need to have a good what will um, usually be a very short conversation um, with your uh, state representative or state senator. And it is meaningful to have a constituent actually show up and have a brief conversation with a legislator or their assistant. Um, it means a lot for them to have that kind of connection. Uh, so this is a tremendous opportunity. I, I would also encourage our listeners who are unable to attend to purposely pray for lawmakers in Salem. There's a lot going on. There's a lot at stake. The two pieces of legislation you mentioned among them, and we have access to the not the governor necessarily, but to the Lord of glory. We can pray uh, that decisions will be made that are in the best interests of Oregonians and certainly for those who are pre-born. Now, uh, the Oregon Supreme Court recently ruled on a measure passed by Oregon voters uh, that rendered 10 pro-life senators ineligible for re-election. First, is that having an impact on this short session and your thoughts in general on this um, this uh, initiative that was passed by voters and now affirmed by the Supreme Court? Uh, well, I... It's the first week of session, but I think we can reasonably look at um, if those 10 senators decide as a group to not show up again or to walk out based on things that they want to see or don't see in the session, um, they could they could again um, shut things down. I think that's probably in the back of, of everyone's mind. Um, there's no indication. I haven't seen any indication that they intend to do that. They're all... Um, you know, there was a, a grave reason why they decided to do what they did. Um, and and uh, I, I don't I think that has a, that has an impact, just sort of a pall over what's happening at the legislature. I think that, um, you know, the 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 constitutional measure um, that was passed um basically to, is taken away a tool that the minority had to keep the majority from continuing to just roll over um, and f- people's rights, honestly. I mean, there there's a lot that happens at the legislature that is in the weeds, it's rules, mm-hmm. it's this and that, but it has a real impact on what passes and what doesn't pass and what's considered. I think we talked about Georgine when House Bill 2002 was going through the process. They um, there's there's their own rules and statutes that that they're not following. The 
the idea of readability so that average citizens can understand what the bill says and what the bill means. There's the idea that a piece of legislation should actually be heard and considered publicly on both sides of the legislature in the Senate and the House. And they have procedures that that skip over important parts of that. And I think that all played that all played into why mm-hmm. these ten made the decision that they knew this could be the possibility that they would be prevented from running again um, to go ahead and do that and and stop what was happening and during that session in an attempt to get us back on track um, in in the, this radical um, path that we're on um, that is. Uh, in, in made possible by this by their um, the legislative leaders not not following the rules, yeah, their and own rules by procedures. Yeah, and yeah. it it sounds kind of like this oh boring civic stuff, but it it it's not. It's important. It really matters, and it allows people to have more of an influence on the process, which is the way it's supposed to be. Yeah, and yeah. it's it has an impact on parental rights, you know, and these really important things that are impacting our children, um, born and unborn. Okay. I need to take a quick break. We'll continue this conversation. Again, we're talking with Lois Anderson. She is the executive director of Oregon Right to Life. We're talking about a number of issues, and we'll continue in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm talking with Lois Anderson, Executive Director of Oregon Right to Life. We're talking about a number of issues. Just before the break, we were talking about the 10 lawmakers who were willing to essentially sacrifice themselves for the sake of legislation that they felt very strongly about was being rammed through the uh, the legislative process. And at great personal cost, they stepped away from uh, the legislature in order to slow down uh, these uh, these laws and to draw attention to the uh, to these uh, pieces of legislation, House Bill 2002 and Senate Joint Resolution 33 uh, in the uh, in the legislature. Um, this was a six week walkout. It led to significant concessions on both uh, of those bills uh, and effectively halted the the passage of Senate Joint Resolution 33. So while we might uh, hear and read headlines that suggest these 10 just walked out and uh, didn't do their job, they were doing their job in walking out for reasons that most of us wouldn't have read about, but were very significant to what's uh, happening in the state of Oregon or what is not happening uh, as a consequence. Now, you pointed out in your um, most recent um, email that six are affected in 2024, four of the 10 affected in 2026. They are um, forbidden, according to the Supreme Court, and there's apparently no place else to go now from seeking reelection. Any uh, any uh, scuttlebutt on what that means for them and for um, others who would seek to replace them with the same views? Well, um, there is a federal case that's making its way ah. through the courts, but there's not a lot of um, uh, consensus that that's going to be decided before the filing deadline, which is in March. Um, so there are uh, uh, these uh, can- legislators have been working in their own districts to, um, with this in mind, that they may not be able to run again. 
and there are candidates that are starting to come forward. Um, and we are working as well because uh, all of these were in pro-life, are pro-life senators, and we want to make sure that um, they have, the voters in those districts have the opportunity to vote for a pro-life senator um, in the pro-life candidate in this election cycle. So um, uh, one person that has come that uh, has recently announced that may be a familiar name to some to some folks is Bruce Starr. Mm -hmm. He he lives in uh, Brian Bolquist district, which is sort of mid Willamette Valley. Um, And he is going to run and uh, hopefully return uh, to the legislature. Um, There's also some talk uh, that there might be some. uh, that Senator Lithicum, his his wife uh, Diane, has been his um, wonderful legislative assistant, and and she she may run. That isn't a finalized um, uh, plan yet. And then uh, Senator Bill Hansel, who's from the eastern part of the state, had already announced that he wasn't going to be running for re-election. And and there's a um, a uh, primary going on there, which we recently endorsed it, a candidate. Um, and we would, it's really important to replace the Senator Hansel with a, a pro-life, uh, pro-life Senator. So there's a lot, there's a lot of moving parts, a lot of things going on right now with, a, with that. Yeah. Speaking of things going on, there is a pro-life conference that happens to be the largest in the Pacific Northwest. Together We Advocate. That's coming up on March the 2nd at Rolling Hills Church. Tell us about the Oregon Right to Life conference. Oh, it's just such a great day. If in you, Whether you're somebody that's been involved in pro-life advocacy for a long time or you're brand new, um, grab a friend. You're going to find a wonderful day of encouragement and fellowship. We have some great speakers coming out. Um, Tony McFadden, who um, is a post-abortive woman who has written a wonderful book and has a wonderful testimony and ministry, uh, particularly with with young people. Um, and she's been she spoke at the March for Life in 2019, the National March for Life, and at Miss Students for Life events. So um, it's a great opportunity to hear her. We're bringing out uh, Wesley Smith who is um, a writer for the National Review on all things bioethical and and end of life. He is just extremely knowledgeable and also a a wonderful speaker. He's going to be speaking as well as doing a workshop. So um, that is a great opportunity for for people. And Alex Schoenberg from Canada, who is also working on... um, uh, the assisted suicide and euthanasia issues in Canada, which, of course, a lot going on there. Mm-hmm. And um, then Stephen Wagner from Justice for All. Um, it's a great organization that does a lot of apologetics work. And then we have all our great workshops. So it's just a, it's a really great day. You will find something new to learn. You will meet somebody new. And um, our goal is that you'll leave with some new information and new tools to advocate in your church and your community and and maybe even your family. 
And again, that's coming up on March the 2nd. It's going to be held at Rolling Hills Church in, I think that's Beaverton. It might be Lake Oswego. I'm not sure. Anyway, Tualatin. Thank you. That's the other one in (laughs) Tualatin. I want to give people um, uh, information on where to connect uh, to attend the retreat. But before I do that, can you also just make a brief mention of the launch retreat, an opportunity for young people who want to hone their skills as pro-lifers? Yeah, we're... We're getting it all in today. Yeah, launch is for young adults age 16 to 21. It's a four-day, three-night retreat. Um, and it's just a great opportunity to be with a, a small, we cap it at 25 students. Um, it's, a, it's a great opportunity to be with a, a small group of other like-minded young adults who want to learn more about the pro-life movement. Um, Emily Albrecht from Equal Rights Institute will be joining us for two of those days and and, um, training on uh, the best pro-life arguments. And then we have field trips and other speakers that really uh, give a 360-degree view of the pro-life movement. And uh, we talk about uh, where, where, where can you um, advocate now and maybe what looks like your future. And we've just had uh, so many students come from lunch, start student groups, get involved in their pregnancy centers, um, their local pregnancy centers, raising money, volunteering, um, and doing really great pro-life advocacy right away. Um, you don't have to wait as a young adult to, to do things. You can, you can be a, a wonderful pro-life advocate right away. So uh, you, can ap- you can apply for that. Um, it's at the end of March. Um, applications are open now on our website, ortl.org. And again, ortl.org. If you haven't caught on, Oregon like Right to Life is doing a lot. And uh, they invite you to come alongside and work with them to make this a state in which it is a, a predominantly pro-life. That's our hope and prayer. And many have been working toward that end for many years. Lois, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you for all your hard work and that of the volunteers and staff at Oregon Right to Life. Thanks. Thank you. Again, Lois Anderson, Executive Director of Oregon Right to Life. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, yesterday was something of an embarrassment for Republican presidential candidate Mickey Haley. Nikki Haley, as nearly 63% of Republican primary voters in Nevada marked their ballots with none of these candidates instead of voting for her, even though she was essentially running unopposed. Where was Donald Trump? Well, he wasn't on the ballot, opting instead to take part in the Nevada caucuses uh, where the state's 26 delegates will be awarded. That's uh, coming up tomorrow. Uh, Why have both a primary and a caucus just uh, days apart occurring? Well, it's a great question. Three years ago, state Democrats passed a law to move from a caucus format to a primary format, which, not surprisingly, given the penchant for um, ballot stuffing, allows for mail-in and early voting. Well, the GOP declined to play along, though saying that uh, it would only award delegates during its caucuses. Well, Haley didn't campaign in Nevada, and she's accused the state GOP of manipulating the system and favor of Trump. Even Donald Trump knows that when you play penny slots, the House wins, a Haley spokesperson said of this configuration. We didn't bother to play a rigged game for Trump. We are full steam ahead in South Carolina and beyond, end quote. Well, as for Trump, he noted, 
I'll, uh, it was a bad uh, night for Nikki Haley, losing by almost 30 points in Nevada for none of these candidates. Watch, she'll soon claim victory, end quote. Well, in a related story, embattled Republican National Committee Chairwoman Ronna McDaniel, the longest-serving RNC chair in modern history, has announced that she'll step down after the South Carolina primary later this month. Based on the GOP's election results in recent years, um, many say it's a good idea. Well, Cruz is calling for McConnell's uh, walking papers. It's uh, it's said that success has a thousand fathers, but failure is an orphan. And the Senate's long secretive bipartisan border bill is no exception. Yesterday, the um, as noted, uh, the proposed legislation whose language was finally made public Sunday night was doomed to fail. And it appears that Senate Republicans are blaming the, their leader for the fiasco. Texas Senator Ted Cruz called for Senator, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell to resign from his leadership position amid the backlash to the Ukraine-Israel-Gaza funding bill disguised as a border bill. I think it is, said Cruz, when asked whether it's uh, time for McConnell to go. As the National Review reported, Cruz, a longtime critic of McConnell, was one of the 10 GOP senators who opposed the Kentucky Republicans' re-election bid for Senate minority leader in November of 22. Cruz criticized McConnell for overstaying his welcome. Apparently he was elected, so maybe not. Overstaying his welcome in the Senate and playing a key role in the negotiated terms of the border deal with Senators uh, Rick Scott of Florida, Mike Lee of Utah, Ron Johnson of Wisconsin and J.D. Vance of Ohio, along with Roger Marshall of Kansas and Eric Schmidt of Missouri backing Cruz's position. No word on whether Oklahoma Senator James Langford will face any serious repercussions for his role in helping to craft the legislation. Well, those who value free speech and free expression should be troubled by the arrest of a 26-year-old Palestinian migrant from North Africa who apparently stole the American and Israeli flags from the homeowner's yard in suburban New York City and then pummeled the man while yelling anti-Semitic slurs at him. As it was reported, these are not the type of people who come to America like my grandparents did, said one observer, like your grandparents did, your great-grandparents Mine, of course, came over on a slave ship, so I'm reading someone else's comment, who came to America to kiss the ground. Nassau County Executive Bruce Blakeman told reporters on Tuesday, instead, they spit on our flag, they trample on our values, and they commit crimes, and they do so at taxpayer expense. The alleged perpetrator says he entered the U.S. at... Uh, surprised the Mexican border at uh, at Arizona over the summer and says he's seeking asylum. Elsewhere in unwanted uh, immigrant news, four of the group of um, individuals who curb stomped two New York City cops and then gave the uh, double finger, middle finger to the American people were arrested in Arizona on Monday, according to Immigration and Customs Enforcement. It's frustrating, he goes on to say, it's never it never should have happened. And you don't put a hand on a police officer anywhere in the state of New York and get away with it. The opportunist uh, opportunist. Dickly, can't say the word, uh, tough New York uh, Governor Kathy Hochul said of the events, who uh, no doubt senses the public outrage over the assault and is now engaged in damage control. In any event, people are frustrated, and this is an election year. Well, our open border nation reached another grim and infuriating milestone today as we've uh, hit one million border encounters since the 2024 fiscal year began in October. Oddly, that number includes nearly 20,000 Chinese illegals, which is almost as many as are uh, were encountered all of last year. Now, these may in fact be sincere Chinese 
citizens who are seeking to um, escape communism, or it may be something else. And that's the concern. This gives Chinese nationals the dubious distinction of being the fastest growing group of illegal border crossers. As CBS News reported, some of the migrants made a grueling journey through Central America with dusty backpacks. But we noticed middle class migrants from China arriving with rolling carts. They told us they took flights all the way to Mexico. Some flew from China to Ecuador because it doesn't require a visa for Chinese nationals. Then they took took flights to Tijuana, Mexico, where they connected with human traffickers for the remainder of their trip. All of this points to the need for real border security, which must include a funded mandate for wall construction, the reestablishment of the remain in Mexico policy for so-called asylum seekers and the end of the illegal and disastrous catch and release policy. We'll see what actually happens. Meanwhile, Iran is shrugging off the president's strikes after telegraphing to Iran for a week that he would hit back following the Iranian-backed strike that killed three U.S. soldiers. Joe Biden greenlighted a barrage of airstrikes over the weekend that targeted Iranian militia sites in Syria and Iraq. The result was some 40 people killed, but no significant Iranian individuals. Then on Monday, another Iranian-backed drone strikes Strike, rather, in Syria killed six members of a U.S. allied militia. So much for deterring Iran. If the goal is to deter Iran, you're failing miserably, observed South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham. If the goal is to protect American troops, you're not achieving your goal. He further noted that Iran is not afraid of the U.S. with Biden at the helm. And why should the mullahs be afraid? Biden has bent over backwards to avoid actually holding Tehran to account and the apparent hope that he can resume Barack Obama's Iran nuke deal. Well, many of the hostages are dead while Israel aid dies in the house of the remaining 136 Israeli hostages that Hamas militants captured and brought into Gaza following their murderous October 7th attacks on Israel. At least 32 are dead. Israeli military officials have informed family members of those hostages who have been confirmed dead with the IDF, noting that most of them were killed on the day of the attack. Hamas took a total of 240 hostages and has released less than half of them. Meanwhile, stateside, the House failed to pass the the standalone $17.6 billion aid bill for Israel, falling short of the two-thirds majority needed for the legislation's passage. Joe Biden had already promised to veto any standalone aid to Israel, while disingenuously accusing Republicans of playing politics with support for Israel. Unfortunately, House Speaker Mike Johnson has been most handicapped by fellow Republican lawmakers who seemingly can't recognize the forest for the trees and unify behind a common agenda. But that is, after all, politics. I want to thank James Blend for producing, Dave King for engineering here in Portland, and thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a good night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn. 
deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.